Live Studios. Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet features rotating guests who discuss the impact the Internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devon Sarantino? I'm an artist, currently located in Minneapolis. After 2015, the conversation about protecting net neutrality seemed like it would be a thing of the past. But surprise, 2017's here and net neutrality is back on the ropes with a new president, new FCC chair, and a Republican administration that thinks the internet is connected from place to place with tubes, it's time to start worrying again about the free and open internet. My guest David Miller has been involved with net neutrality protection for years and helps break down the internet's impact on the music scene, how net neutrality affects small businesses and artists, and the importance of educating yourself on this inevitable human rights issue. I am recording with a longtime friend, a hometown friend, David Miller. Hey, David. Hi, how are you? Why don't you introduce your robust self to my many listeners? Is that a dig at my weight? Oh, it, no, you're, you're looking pretty svelte these days. <laughs> um, so, my name is David Miller. I make music under the moniker Dos Electros. I produce other artists. Uh, I work in pharmaceutical advertising. Uh, yeah, I, I do whatever I can get my hands on. And once in a while, I get politically active. But but about select things. Like the topic today, which is net neutrality? Is oh, that, is that what we're talking about? That's what we're going to talk about. Where can people find you online? Uh, at doselectros.com, uh, D-O-S-E-L-E-C-T-R-O-S.com. I think I spelled that right. Yeah, um, that's a little alarming. <laughs> on Instagram, at dos underscore electros. Uh, on Facebook, dos electros you know, wherever social media can be found. Yeah, and we'll have all those links on the website. I'm I'm on Ello, you know. Is anybody still on? You know, I go and check once a month just in case it really blew up and I somehow alluded my... Poor Ello. It's like a little social media site that couldn't... (laughs) I was so hopeful of Ello. I I needed that invite to Ello so badly. Oh. And then I got it and I went, this is it. I was so selective of even who I shared my LO, like five, what was it, like five or ten, like emails that you could send to get, I felt like such an elitist ass about LO. Yeah, well, that's what happens when, when only the elitists are allowed in. It's, it's kind of boring, huh? And then it didn't have a mobile app, which like strike a hundred. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah uh, about ten years or so ago, I started really kind of digging into the to the idea of net neutrality because I read about it and I knew that a lot of musical artists were rallying around it and I didn't understand it. And all I knew is if R.E.M. and Pearl Jam and all of these <laughs> other acts are are really, really behind this, like it must be important. And Bono was not involved, which is always a plus. Yeah, that's um, that would have detra- so, that would have made me detract from the whole Exactly, yeah. But I can get behind R E M. But I uh, I was trying to understand it and the more I started digging in, I thought this really, one, isn't getting the reach it deserves. Two, uh, I think people are having a hard time understanding it because people are having a hard time explaining it. it it's hard to, to, to explain to people who are, for the most part, end users on the internet, how limiting content providers directly impact them because it's not direct, it's indirect. Sure. Um, but it's of grave consequence not to protect content providers for the sake of and users and consumers. Uh, before we really get into net neutrality and its impact, I wanted to talk a little bit about the internet and artists and the internet and music in general and how 
the way that artists and musicians even connect with or distribute to audiences has drastically changed even since the conversation of net neutrality has started, especially over like the past 17 years since like the introduction of the 2000s. Like I definitely, when I first hit the internet scene, didn't really think of it as a distribution method for art until like Napster. And then I was like, oh, I will never pay for anything again. Um, <laughs> which is, a, that, that, that only lasted through high school. I, but, and here's the thing, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I mean, we, we have, we have to acknowledge that anybody creating capacities to earn a living at it and needs to, to some extent, think of it as a business. Uh, there is a terrible stereotype that artists are not especially savvy business people or just don't have the best business acumen, but with good reason. Well, I mean, let me, let's take Napster. And the reason why uh, I think the overwhelming majority of artists weren't bothered by it, because one, it could be likened to the cassette boom in the late 70s, early 80s, in which people were taping albums for their friends, and, and that was considered piracy. Oh, and this, yet, in the this end, audience is really young. You might need to explain yeah. what a cassette is. Oh, uh, <laughs> small, quarter-inch tape put into a plastic casing. Wikipedia. So... The, you know, the, the idea was that it was ultimately a, a further reach for promoting their music because artists don't make money off their recordings anyway in the grand scheme of things. They're making them from touring or licensing or publishing. Um, the only people that really bothers are the record labels. Sure. Uh, so once you know, record labels had, had gotten so used to being the, being the cart before the horse, essentially, and telling radio stations what to play and promoting certain things and deciding how much money to promote this artist versus another artist, they were dictating what everyone was listening to for the most part, except college radio. And the internet completely turned that on its side because now you can find music so much easier. Artists can promote themselves for a fraction of the amount of money they used to be able to. They can circumvent labels entirely and they're still not making a lot of money on recordings because they want to make good recordings. They spend 60000 some of them, $60,000 to make an album. Making $60,000 back on an album is not easy okay. um, without the clout of a big label. But when you do, you're making more of a percentage on that than you would have if you had a record label taking their share. So it was this whole, you know, the paradigm shift was very favorable to artists. Um, and ultimately, your reach is, is just a lot a lot further. And I think a lot of artists have just sort of even resigned to making the best product they can and selling it for as little as, as they can just to get it out there. Or in a lot of cases, the pay-what-you-want model or giving it away. Yeah, I think that it's been a little bit different for visual artists, but the same road. There was always a lot of competition, or at least understood, from musicians because to jettison into a larger career, you were trying to catch the eye of a label that would then promote you or pay interest to you. Where I think that visual artists lived in this kind of unique experience where because there wasn't the visibility to all of your competition, you lived in these like microcosms of like, well, you go to certain cities, you make yourself known in that city, mm-hmm. and then you you blow up that way. And I think yeah. that the initial introduction of so many visual artists online actually created a, a bit of a, a pushback from the, the visual arts community in their acceptance and appreciation of technology. I think that that is slowly, I think I would say slowly turning 
as you're seeing more multimedia digital artists come out because they're, you know, the, the realization that you have to be a part of this conversation. But I still don't know, outside of uh, what major systems like Etsy or um, even Instagram, that the e-commerce part isn't as intuitive, I believe, to visual artists as it probably is with other small businesses or music. I think that's true, but I think it also, I mean, I've got, I don't know if my definition of art jives with everybody else's, but I would put a lot of makers and a lot of uh, builders, uh, graphic designers, things like that, in that same category. And there's a huge e-commerce component there because, I mean, that's, you know, that's what you find on Etsy is, uh, or, you know, Amazon handmade, you know, stuff like that. Sure. But I think ultimately what what it really comes back to is people on the other side, your audience, being able to find you more easily. And it's about sort of their access to you. Or how artists can start to define or redefine their audiences. I think that when you were producing, at least especially visual art, if you weren't in a major city, you had uh, a much more limited audience. And who you could connect with wasn't necessarily dictated by you, where now... Uh, because of the internet, you can find your niche community and they can find you, which means that they can become your pa- like a patron faster or things like Etsy can exist and you can get some type of niche product that would have been nearly impossible unless you were in some weird, I don't know, like a community of... <laughs> but but remember, remember how every so often some kind of community would blow up out of nowhere because it was largely overlooked by... Uh, and you know, we're, we're talking pre-internet and early internet, granted how many years of the internet it's still very early but you know if you look at why and it's not just music i mean seattle blew up with a lot of visual art in the late 80s early 90s as well it's because artists and musicians weren't coming through there to show their work or to tour and play shows um and they had to make their own and eventually you get this great groundswell of artists and everyone else is sort of forced to take notice and it happened in omaha and, you know, it happens every time. And honestly, so I just came from Marfa, and I do feel like Marfa is sort of this great little area because West Texas, you've got, you've got very little actually happening, and it's actually quite beautiful. But nobody's coming there with their traveling show, so artists are going to go to Marfa to create for Marfa, and if a community will foster the environment, then, you know, new work will grow out of that. Yeah. Marshall's a really great example of something that within the artistic community is widely known, especially in visual arts. And I think that the distribution of the images of that work online is what, even though Marfa remains primarily untouched, like if you ever say, like, I'm going to go to Marfa, Texas, people are like, you're going to see a gas station, some installations, and then like, that's it. The undisputed uh, value of that as an art space, I think is traveled across communities because of the internet and yeah. that and that's that's essentially to me the the way that these niche communities whether they're artists or like arts organizations communities that might not have large representation that's what the playing field of the internet provides you can go on and if you can generate a large community you will become supported and you, there's the competition is pretty fair in that sense which is why this idea of net neutrality, to bring it to our topic, has such an impact on that idea of competition and visibility. 
Amongst so many other things. Yeah, I, I don't know. Competition is always a funny word for me to think of in, in the same space as art. But I, I, I absolutely, I mean, you are competing for visibility, you are competing for an audience. And and yeah, and I'm glad you used the word playing field because essentially what you're trying to do is, is create a, a level playing field where as long as you understand <clears throat> the criteria that makes your work visible online, search engine optimization, so on and so forth, then you're making it infinitely easier for people to access your work and find you. It's kind of this, this interesting thing to sort of think about how net neutrality was explained because nobody really thought of it, or at least, you know, it wasn't being explained in such a way that people were, were thinking about it from the end user's point of view. Uh, the early definition that I saw when I first became aware of it was that it was, um, you know, the guiding principles that preserve a free and open internet. And I remember reading that and going, well, what does that mean? Yeah, it's so vague. It, it's, it's super vague. And, and honestly, it's, it's not wrong. But it's, it's, it's only, it only makes sense if you already understand it. It's kind of like there's this really cliche expression for people trying to, quote-unquote, explain jazz, um, <laughs> where you know, people go, oh, I just don't get jazz. And someone will go, oh, well, the trick is you got to listen to the notes they're not playing. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I mean, in the end, if you, if, if you do get jazz and you like jazz, it's not wrong. It makes sense. But really what you're trying to say is it's an abstract representation of a written piece or something like that. Sure. Not, you know, the other, the other thing is it's not that it's wrong. It's just so misleading. Um, and so this idea of preserving a free and open internet to end users, that doesn't mean the same thing that it means to a content provider. And so, these, you know, you're talking to people who are already paying for internet service, and it's so easy to take for granted that, yeah, websites just work. It gets pushed live, and bandwidth is bandwidth. And it, it was such a struggle, because then you've got people like Ted Stevens famously trying to describe bandwidth as, you know, the internet being a series of tubes. It's like, nope, that's not even regular. <laughs> well, I think that, like, a lot of technology... People who are not tech tech bent view it as like magic, right? Like I I don't understand why this works. I don't <laughs> like I, I work in a tech company, and most of the time when it it becomes a conversation of like, well, how do we get A to B? It it's like, oh well, someone will do something, and then things will happen. We promise. Yeah. With with the best of intentions, it it was trying to be simplified for people to understand, but it just it paints. Uh, a really incomplete picture. Yeah, and ambiguity always leads to people taking advantage of a situation. Because if you're saying open and free internet, putting caps on that bandwidth doesn't necessarily mean that it's not open and free anymore. It just means right. that there's a different speed. And that's where the vagueness of that definition and the lack of consumer awareness and political awareness starts to work against the all of us. I like usually reference like people who use the internet as users, but like that's like explaining everybody who breathes air as users at this point. Like it's just, a, yeah. it's just something that we need. Yeah, one, it's it's so funny because I'm never sure. Um, you know, when you talk about uh, certain kinds of video content, are you are you still talking about the viewer or are you talking about the user? So it's, it's you know, so let's just let's can we should we designate a word? Should we just say audience? Sure, we'll say audience. The, the internet has an audience like anything else has an audience. I assume. Yeah. Once in a while, you come across somebody who sort of gets this and is forward-thinking enough to know the importance of trying to preserve what people are already taking for granted. And just because large telecoms 
ISPs haven't tread on you yet doesn't mean that the door isn't wide open for them to do so. So for me, that introduction was the Future of Music Coalition, who were, at the time I became aware of them, they were doing a lot to sort of help uh, musicians who are, you know, largely self-employed find health insurance. And then I started seeing them, you know, publish more and more about net neutrality, and they put together the Rock the Net campaign, which was, you know, practically a, a petition of a who's who of artists saying, this is important and, and we need to talk about this. So at that point, I got involved putting together a benefit album for the Future Music Coalition because I was just so absolutely enamored of their organization and wanted to do something to help them. They were not lobbyists. They were basically uh, trying to educate policymakers on Capitol Hill as much as they could. And I think they did an excellent job. But it took a long time, and even just in terms of getting the media to report, I think a lot of it had to do with how confusing that early definition was, that it just wasn't easy to, to get the conversation started. But uh, Tom Wheeler got it. He, he certainly understood the significance. But what you have are, you know, the FCC, which has long been in charge of radio and television, and how does the internet fit into that? So, so that was sort of a, a new concept in the 2000s. I remember when net neutrality started to pick up steam and it became like a minimal political conversation and it didn't have the urgency around it because at the time we weren't using the internet the way we are right now. So you brought up a good point about there was people foreseeing what the internet would become and how it would be used. But when you're in the middle of it and it wasn't the e-commerce behemoth that it was, Netflix was just starting and it was still predominantly a subscription-based service, not a streaming service. There was minimal conversation about what that could mean. And I think what really threw the FCC in, into it, aside from public outcry, and was the idea of streaming content because it's, you know, start to fall more in the range of like more people are getting their information, their news, watching television, all through the internet. It's no longer in these old older systems that the FCC oversaw. To me, it seemed like a natural evolution. I don't think that it was a welcomed evolution to many of the telecom companies that also hold a lot of the internet infrastructure. Well, I mean, and foresight's a funny thing because surely nobody knows, nobody knew what the internet was going to be 20 years down the line or what you were going to be able to find on it. When telecoms that have a, a large broadcast presence, broadcast television presence, uh, were getting in on becoming ISPs, it was because, well, they also controlled phone lines. And then, you know, you're going to get cable internet. Well, they already had the cable lines. I don't think they saw themselves suddenly competing with Netflix or with Amazon and that a huge lion's share of where they make their money was suddenly going away. They're being outdone by more creative work uh, with comparable budgets and it's being pumped directly to the audience. The best thing that could have happened was the whole Netflix versus Comcast issue um, because I think that's what finally made the everyday audience for the internet realize why this was important and how it impacts them. Because God forbid you take away our Netflix. We love our Netflix. <laughs> we love our Netflix. And the minute the idea is like, well, wait a minute, my Netflix isn't streaming correctly. It, it keeps having to buffer. This is terrible. And Comcast has gone, well, yeah, Netflix, if you want to reach your audience, you're going to have to cough up a little more scratch. That was not going to sit well with the public. And that was when people, I think, were able to really connect the dots. It was a real watershed moment. 
But it's so much less about a content provider versus a telecom who just wants to charge money for bandwidth. And it was more about, oh, well, you're now our direct competition. We make TV shows. We have a, a whole thing in place to monetize it. We, it's based on ratings and, and we can sell advertising. And you're taking away a large part of our audience. I remember the first time like a dust up came out around net neutrality, but it was around like the throttling of BitTorrent. And I think that you're right that the Netflix conversation made it so much more relevant because with the BitTorrent conversation, it, it was easy to say that what they were throttling was a legal use of, you know, this, this idea of, of pirating and stealing and more yeah. of the dark BitTorrent side of the was stigmatized. Yeah. yeah. And with Netflix, where I'm a paying customer, where I was told that I was going to get a particular product and it's going to come through me through internet that I'm paying for. So why would there be a slowdown of my content that I'm paying for legally on two different fronts? And I think that you're right. That's where it hit home for most people of like, wait a minute, if you can do this with Netflix, well, what about any other area that doesn't want to pay for that, that faster speed? I think that there's like, that's a, a good introduction to like the, the, the impact of the loss of net neutrality. There's way more things along that line. Well, I mean, for someone like Comcast, it's about keeping their competition at bay because Comcast doesn't have to cough up extra money for the fast lane. And really what it is about is it's about small business. You have a website and you make scarves and you can buy scarves from Walmart or Target or Amazon. They can afford the fast lane. They do very well. You are in an e-commerce business to keep your overhead down. You are a startup. You can't, you can't afford to have to pay more money just to be able to compete with them. No. Whereas it stands now, back to the very operative word you used, level playing field. If you understand the game, you understand SEO, you are absolutely 100% competing with them right out the gate. And that, this is going to sound super cliche and super sappy. I don't have a better, <laughs> I don't have a better expression, but that's the American dream. And it's sort of the last frontier of the American dream. Oh, I think that that's like a pretty apropos way to think about it. And if anybody who listens to the show also watches Shark Tank, you would see that all of those entrepreneurs, <laughs> <laughs> all of those entrepreneurs are so enthralled with anybody who can maintain their business on e-commerce because brick and mortar is essentially too competitive. It's almost impossible for a small business to in a brick and mortar sense, compete with your larger, your Amazon, your Walmart, um, anything like that. And honestly, the internet in many ways, like if we're going to think about the American dream, it's also the housing of multiculturalism. It's, uh, it's really the way for any underrepresented community to have an equal voice. So beyond mm -hmm. business, like the loss of net neutrality you don't have Black Lives Matter. You don't have a Chance the Rapper. Like the attack on net neutrality is even just about business and isn't about politics or silencing people or controlling what information and how that information is spread. All of that comes into play. Leah, we are living in Trump's America. Information means nothing. Access to information, specifically. Information is actually really important, but only... Uh, only what certain parties would like to pass off as information. Sorry, my soapbox fell out. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, that's really what it is. Um, I, I, don't, I now see the attack on net neutrality as being uh, part of a two-pronged attack, the other prong being the attack on uh, 
the, the press in general right now. It's funny because you know these are the same people who are supposed to be so in favor of small business. Oh, they care about your small business so much. Dodd-Frank is terrible because if we regulate the banks, the banks aren't going to give you the small business the loans. And, and you know, th this, is, this is bad for, for small business. This is bad for America. And it, it's the same thing. It, 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 you would think they would be able to apply the same logic to net neutrality. Net neutrality is important because it's going to allow your business to compete. It's good for small business. And instead, I think it goes to show that the technology gap is a really major player here. I don't want to completely stereotype the GOP as being old, out of touch white people, but I mean, it, it, I, I think it, I think it plays uh, uh, I think it plays a major role, and I think that that's why educating people about technology is so important. And that was that was the whole thing with Ted Stevens. Here's a guy who's speaking on behalf of the Commerce Committee, who doesn't understand the way technology works that a lot of us can take for granted because we just understand it. You know, I don't fault people for not understanding it but I will fault them for not wanting to understand it. And it, it very much feels like because uh, protecting net neutrality was a democratic initiative proposed at a, at a time when the Republicans were obstructing anything uh, that seemed like a democratic initiative, net neutrality just sort of fit the bill as, as well, I don't understand it. But if this is where it's coming from, it can't possibly be good. Sure, it's like this this blindly following the party to obstruct anything without understanding the impact to even their own constituents. And I don't think it's a disconnect in their understanding of technology. I think it's their understanding of manipulating their constituents of their non-knowledge of technology. And I think that there's a clear understanding of the financial benefit as well as the political benefit of throttling the internet from its audience. Maybe it started with the the idea of just trying to be a, an obstructionist and you know lack of knowledge about technology, but I think that it's now very much jettisoned in, into we understand what is happening here and by we, the, the GOP. And in 2016, we thought that this net neutrality conversation was, at least the loss of net neutrality was done. And now it's resurfacing with a new FCC chair. I don't think that I can still go along with the idea that it's a bunch of possibly well-meaning GOP leadership who just don't know about the impact of technology. At this point, the, it's very calculated the steps that have been taken even in this past month to try to roll back any accomplishment that we had with this subject. Well, I don't know. Does, does that count as being an obstructionist? If you're, well, I guess, being a revisionist, going back and revising everything to be, to be the way well, now, it was Yeah, before. now you're being a revisionist. But I think it's a yeah. calculated revisionist, where I think before it was a blind obstructionist. But I, I don't think, you know, Ajit Pai, who's taken over the FCC, I don't think he actually understands net neutrality in terms of uh, the potential impact and why it's important. He certainly understands that the rules on paper in front of him, and he understands how they apply to telecom providers. If he truly understood the impact or why it's important, uh, I don't know that he would be so quick to uh, start chipping away at the rules so quickly. So to set up for 
for everyone listening. In 2016, the FCC decided that the internet should be classified as a utility, which means it has special protections under the FCC that they are allowed to regulate and determine how the internet is used broadly. Is that like a fair way? Yeah. So Title II under the Communications Act uh, makes it a utility by classifying it as Title II, uh, you then get to regulate providers. So the same way you can regulate providers of gas, providers of water, providers of electricity. Now, with a new FCC chair, that now comes up to a debate again, you know, reclassify the internet to not be a utility, and essentially bring up the conversation again about you know, different internet lanes and being able to throttle audience by ensuring that the providers have to receive payment. Title II includes a lot of rules regarding data sharing, predictions for how ISPs and telecoms collect data. One of the reasons that you have to give explicit consent before a site of any kind can collect data used for targeting ads, that's all because of Title II. The scary thing about it is when Tom Wheeler served an ad to Title II at the beginning of 2016, I, you know, to your point, didn't seem like we were ever going to have to have this conversation yet. I definitely got soft over the last year just sort of enjoying the progress. The new appointed head of the FCC, Eddie Pai, I don't even know if I pronounced his name correctly, so Mr. Pai, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can stop listening, sir. If it's <laughs> yeah, this, this is not going to bode well for you. Um, he, uh, has the authority to just completely reclassify it. That is absolutely 100% in his authority. It doesn't need to go for a vote. And so that's, you know, that's a, a really scary thing. I think that everybody would like to think, like, let's give Pai the benefit of the doubt or any of these new political systems or political people the benefit of the doubt. We need to talk about it in terms of the larger scope. When we touched upon how it does seem contrary to Republicans being very pro-small business and how this really hurts small business. But at the same time, what I don't get, what just doesn't make sense to me, is FCC is essentially an independent agency. So why mirror you know, the administration's loosening of government regulations? Like, if you're solely doing it for the benefit of telecoms, it just sort of looks more like corporatism. And I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but that's, on the surface, what it looks like. I mean, I have a hard time seeing it as anything else. There's been such an outcry from everybody in terms of like audiences online to the FCC about the desire to maintain net neutrality. There's been more discussion about this in the past two years from the average user. And I think that there is a larger understanding of the implications because of the things like Netflix and Comcast, that it's clear that the consumer has spoken. So if the consumers are saying that they want a maintained net neutrality and other political action has been taken to put steps in place to represent what constituents want in terms of net neutrality, the only reason to revise any of this is for the favor of a small few, which is the, which is companies. What makes this to sort of keep more despair on top of that FCC has already stopped nine companies from providing discount high-speed internet to low-income individuals. They have these areas that they've identified as basically low-income areas that deserve Title II internet, but here it is, it's still Title II, and 
they are no longer getting the kinds of breaks that they would get on, say, electricity or gas. This is where I think that net neutrality is going to be one of the biggest human rights issues that we will foresee in, in the future. Do you want to rethink that statement? Because there's a lot of stuff up on the block right now. There is a lot of stuff up on the block. But I'm <laughs> the reason I say this is because the Internet allows us to coordinate, arm ourselves with information, and then execute. And if you are taking that away from our most vulnerable communities, you are essentially placing them in the dark, even further than they already are. And that's where I think that this becomes a deeply human rights issue beyond how artists and musicians and any of us participate in this open internet. We were going to get to the point where people are only going to have access if they have wealth, which means that that becomes a class issue, it becomes a race issue, it becomes a gender issue. The idea that somebody could think why would we provide discounted internet to low-income areas? Let's prohibit people who've agreed to do this. Like, that, to me, is pretty maniacal. It's really hard to see it any other way. Yeah, the thing is, I mean, th there's a lot more that can happen. So, I mean, Congress could just as easily pass a bill uh, amending Title II of, of the Communications Act and, and limit the, the powers of the FCC. That would supersede what the FCC and courts have done so far with reclassifying it. But the thing is, that's simply not going to happen in the current administration. And so it's, it's not going to get any better. As far as I can tell, that would be the only way around sort of the absolute power that uh, a GPI has. For our listeners, to make this actionable, uh, I went to a civics lesson and essentially reaffirmed and validated there's going to be very limited things that any of us can do until 2018 in terms of new policy being introduced that would be considered progressive. And even though I think that this is a bipartisan issue, it has been lumped with Democrats. I think that this is a, the opportune time until 2018 for people to get as much education as possible in terms of what net neutrality is, who it impacts, who it benefits, and who benefits from it being taken away. And mm -hmm. really being vocal in this like resurgence, which I feel like even in the past month, you're seeing this resurgence of interest in local and state government. And that's where this conversation has to keep being pushed. It does, if only to create a groundswell of influence in state and federal government. If anything needs a grassroots beginning to it, it's sort of this second arm of, of the net neutrality fight. Um, everything, I, I, I don't want to keep harping on it, but you, you said it really well in talking about how every, everything seems sort of very contrary to what needs to be done. And yet even, I believe his name is Michael Koff, he was the commissioner of the FCC until 2011. He went on record recently as saying that reversing Title II hurts the FCC's credibility entirely, since it as an organization fought so hard for the Title II classification. So everything just seems very contradictory right now. With that said, the, I think the only way to start getting people to take notice is to get out and talk in their communities, start petitions. But more importantly, you know, we need to be able to explain how net neutrality translates to impacting its audience in order to help people in the audience understand so that they care. This is going to end up on a ballot, voting for certain net neutrality rules. Eventually, it's going to end up being on ballots, and, and you're going to have to vote. And if you don't understand it, you know, we're all going to be behind the eight ball.
people who do understand it being that champion. Because you're right, when I say that I think that this is going to be one of the largest human rights issues, there are so many things that people are trying to comprehend and combat right now that are so immediate. And there's, like we both said, like there wasn't an immediacy to this issue since the introduction of Title II. And I think that it did lose a little bit of momentum in terms of people advocating for its importance to maintain net neutrality. But this is a pivotal time as we're seeing the free press getting less and less free. And we are seeing more communities having to defend themselves in unique ways that anybody that has any kind of platform needs to start talking about how they can use that influence to help educate people to then eventually become more aware of net neutrality, its significance, like you're saying, and then keep pushing it to the forefront of a political discussion. Because it is political. Netflix doesn't seem yeah. political, but it totally is. And I think the trick with this is going to be, you know, there's got to be some model to organize uh, around this, and we need to do it quickly. Because while it's not going to go away overnight, the, the FCC is in a pretty awkward position. It has the power to overturn Wheeler's order outright. But the thing is, it can't do it without drafting a solid replacement. And that's going to take a little time. But in the meantime, it's really up to everyone to, to sort of mobilize a bit. So the question is, how do we do that? I think that everybody is trying to figure out right now. What no, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot right now. <laughs> oh, okay, let me think. It is a good point, though, and one that people will have to keep exploring, and not just with net neutrality, but with many new issues that arise that we thought we were moving in a specific direction, and turns out we're not. Just remember this during midterm elections, everybody. That's a great way to end this. Please remember the significance of net neutrality during midterm elections. Well, thanks so much for talking to me and educating even myself on net neutrality, and I think that this was a really valuable conversation, and I really appreciate your insight. And Incredible wit. Good looks. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. It's my pleasure. Flattery will get you everywhere. Keep going. All right. Thanks so much, David. One more time, where can people find you online? Doselectros.com. Looking to learn more about net neutrality or get involved? Freepress.net and the Global Net Neutrality Coalition are two great organizations that can help you stay up to date with the issues and provide clear calls to action. As always, thank you for listening to Lee and the Internet. Now more than ever, all of us need to keep educating ourselves on the important role the internet plays in informing and influencing people. The internet is an amazing gift that turns from awesome new jet ski into socks when guided by the wrong people. Please share your thoughts and opinions on Twitter at internet and on the blog at leanntheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash internet. Help people discover this podcast by rating Lee and the Internet on iTunes.